sometimes I felt invisible. Like, hey, I'm right here. You don't even see me. You're talking around me. Um, it just reinforced why we needed more women. You sum it all up. It's, it's been, I felt that I made a difference. And I made a difference that uh, was, I felt, positive for the quality of life um, uh, of people in the city of Edmonton. And so um, I wasn't seeing myself in politics. I was tired of partisanship. I'd had some discouraging experiences and I wasn't hearing ideas that I felt compelled or inspired me. I'm just like every other woman. We have to be asked many times. We have to be encouraged. We have to be pushed, whatever, and pulled to see ourselves as being strong enough, good enough, whatever, to, to be an elected person in a decision-making place. Hello, my name is Olivia Beauty. Welcome to Searching for Izena, on womanly stories of female leadership at Edmonton City Hall, brought to you by YWCA Edmonton, Parity Yeg, and several past and present Edmonton City Councillors. 100 years ago, on December 12, 1921, Edmonton elected its first female councillor, Izena Ross. Over the past century, only 30 women have followed in her footsteps, including me. This nine-part podcast, generously sponsored by the Edmund Community Foundation, will tell that wildly incomplete chapter of our city's history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You will get to meet the 31 female councillors and learn more about why they ran and how they shaped our city. And there are still barriers that need to be broken, even in 2021. Now let's get started. Our hosts for this political journey are Stacey Brotzel and Kim Ann Wilson. This is the second episode of Searching for Izena, Unwomanly Stories of Female Leadership at Edmonton City Hall. I'm Stacey Brotzel, joined by my co-host, Kim Ann Wilson. Yes, yes, I'm here. Super excited. It's awesome. This episode, episode two, is going to be amazing. I'm excited. Oh, for sure. I, I, I... And, and we're going to talk a little bit about anger because you're going to get angry, everybody listening, because you've never heard of these names. You've never heard their stories. I know I was pretty angry. I know our guests coming up, Senator uh, Paula Simons, she... She's a uh, she's she's a dog at research, man. She <laughs> digs Both and digs them. and digs. Oh, and we've got uh, former mayor of Morinville, uh, Lisa Holmes, uh, talking a little bit about Izena. This is the podcast named after her. We're going to find out more about her. And we're also going to hear sex scandals. So sex, pot and guns. It's awesome. The stories of it. some of our city councillors. <laughs> you'd be like, oh, what? This should be a movie. Totally a movie. It's it's crazy to see how. And, and I think that's what brought Paula and Lisa to this research. Right. It's that anger. Like when you finally hear about these amazing, you know, trailblazers and not finding much about them in history, it makes you really angry. Yeah. I know I'm angry as a woman. So Ladies and gentlemen, you are going to um, you're going to lose it, but we will jump right in and we are setting the stage for you because we will be going way back. 
A hundred years ago. 1921. Holy. We're going to set the stage on what Edmonton was like before we dig into these ladies' stories. So in 1920, Mm -hmm. Edmonton had a population of 61,405. 61,000. That's like, is that like one of the little wards? It's like one of the wards. That's about as big as a ward is now. Now we sit at just under a million people. Wow. Cars, not a big thing. (laughs) <laughs> what is trying it? Only to, trying to take a car from an Sunday drive now, right? Yeah. <laughs> so people didn't use them every day. They use them on Sundays. Thus, maybe the reason we call them Sunday, Sunday drivers. Drives. Can you yeah. imagine? Can yeah. you imagine, Stacey, thinking back to 1921? You got your nice car. I can just imagine them polishing it down and putting it away. Well, so few and, people you know? had cars, right? Only, only It was the thing to have. Yeah, for sure. Wow. We were in the middle of prohibition. Right. So in 1919, booze was produced at about a buck fifty a bottle. A bottle of bootlegged liquor could sell as much as fifteen dollars. That's crazy. And wait one second. So and and, and then the other thing, liquor could only be prescribed by a doctor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they prescribed it. Let me tell you, a haircut at the Hotel McDonald barbershop cost thirty five cents. A shave was 25. All of these facts dug up. Thank you so much to the people at the Edmonton Public Library for finding out all yes. of this information about the city of Edmonton. Oh, my word. Uh, the population it, by 1920 uh, of this city down 25% in due to part of the war and economic downturn. Uh, many soldiers returning from mm-hmm. war and they needed work mm-hmm. and some called on the city to ban the hiring of married women to preserve jobs for the men. Don't go any further, Stacey. We, we need to talk about this for a second. They wanted to ban hiring of married women. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming, obviously, because they had their husbands, but at the same time... Well, her job was to have babies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Go home and cook. Yep. Right? Go clean. Yep. Go wash. And, and this is the kind of environment the women we're going to be speaking about oh in the next gosh. hour or so. They decided to say, this is not for this me. Right. I'm going to put Mm-mm. myself out here and mm-hmm. I'm going to run for council and mm-hmm. I'm going to be the first woman ever to win. So exactly. Incredible stuff. It is huge. And I guess that's why, you know, the, these women were called unwomanly mm-hmm. because they weren't doing what they were told to do. And beastly. And beastly. It's it's beyond me. So you're told to go home, cook, clean and, and, and you know, stay home and watch the kids. But you, there's so much in need. There was so much to do. These women, they couldn't just sit back behind closed doors and and, and not do what they know is right. Yeah, yeah. And that's just amazing. And it sounded like there was pretty much a campaign to make sure they stayed home. So the Edmonton Journal ran regular advice columns such as what every woman wants to know and mothers and their children advising women to get married (laughs) and have children rather than to pursue careers. Advertisements promoting baby products appealed directly to mothers and those promoting hygiene and beauty. Beauty products That's crazy. targeted women in search of a husband. husband. That yep. is just it's it's so specific, and they're just basically popularizing the fact and making it so pretty and glamorous to stay home, cook, clean, mm-hmm. don't do anything. And you know what? Women can do both. <laughs> we can do it and all. You will hear stories about women who have done all of that. So let's get right into it. Joining us today, former longtime Edmonton Journal columnist, now independent senator, and a lover of Edmonton history, Paula Simons. And we've got Lisa Holmes, co-founder of a national public affairs consulting firm, former mayor of Morinville, and former president of the AUMA. And both are researchers extraordinaire. Let's start with you, Lisa. Uh, This podcast is called Searching for Izena. 
And now we are finally finding out more about her. And you've been digging for months, researching, digging into her background. And I, I saw in a recent email, I saw you described as knowing more about Izena than probably <laughs> anyone else on the planet. Let's talk about Izena Ross. Okay, absolutely. I think I, I probably do know more about her. And I'll I'll actually preface it by saying um, when we started on the project, Catherine O'Neill had texted me and said, we're working on this Azina Ross project. And I Googled her. And the first thing I found on her was a note that said, Mrs. W.J. Ross had just passed away and it was her obituary. And it didn't mention her first name or the fact that she was a city councilor. And so because of that, I was like, I need to know her story. I need to tell her story. I need to make sure people know about who she was. So uh, essentially, she she's not actually born Azina. She's Emma Azina Clark. She was born in 1874 in Clarksville, Ontario. The town in Ontario was named after her father and uh, his family was the first to settle there. And he served on council in Ontario before she moved out here. So she was born in 1874, in 1904, she got married in Ontario when she was 30 years old. She and her husband uh, picked up and moved to Alberta. They had actually bought land from CPR, uh, the railway, and had uh, started homesteading out by Clive. And so her story and, and her journey was a journey to get to Edmonton. She, she was a homesteader. She had one daughter named Elizabeth in 1908 in the Red Deer County area. And then eventually around 1910, 1911, moved up to Edmonton. And that's where she, she started getting more involved in, in the community, more involved in, in the, the city. And you can imagine Edmonton in 1910 to the year 1921 when she was elected was just an amazing and interesting place to be, especially for women. So she was involved with uh, the Edmonton Women's Institute and other organizations that were um, in the same cohort as names that we know, the Alberta Famous Five, Emily Murphy and Nellie McClung. She was a part of those groups. She just, her story is not well known because beyond being the first woman city councillor, beyond being a school trustee for years, she wasn't celebrated in the same way that these other women were. So it's been really interesting to kind of go through and, and dig into her story and kind of come up with some some assumptions on why she did things the way she did and, and who she was as a person. Mm -hmm. Wow. Like that's that's amazing, Lisa, to hear all that. Uh, you know, I kind of want to go back to what you were saying about it being an interesting time between um, her the time she was, ele you know, elected. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it was like for a woman living in that era in that time? Well, one of the interesting things that I, that I found was that this was the emergence of women's organizations. So women were starting to, to be community organizers and to, to gather in spaces to discuss things like politics. And that was probably um, something that hadn't happened in the past as much as, as, it, as it was starting to emerge out and be more mainstream. So we found um, we found a lot of documents because we've had we've had help from the Edmonton Public Library and from the Edmonton Public School Board um, archives and provincial archives. And we found a, a documents where in 1919, she attended a meeting of the Edmonton Women's Institute. It was being chaired by Emily Murphy. And Azina was the one that put her hand up to nominate Nellie McClung to be the president for the next year. 
And that's all documented in, in the minutes. But they were discussing things like prohibition. They were discussing uh, where, whether or not to censor films that were coming out because some of them may be too graphic for the returning soldiers who were suffering from PTSD. They were discussing um, how to get women's issues to be more mainstream and forefront when it came to politics and, and how to get education and, and children's health to be more discussed. So it was a really interesting time for women to take leadership roles. And Azina was one. She was involved in all of it. She, she, if there was an organization that she could have been in, she probably was, because the list of ones that she, she's been associated with over the years is, is probably longer than most people would ever see from anyone else. So, And it was really an interesting time. Work, groups like the Women's Institute and the Women's Christians Temperance Union were a place for women to gather and share ideas. I mean, we think of prohibition now. We imagine people with sort of like very dour faces trying to take all our fun away. But those uh, Christian Temperance Union meetings were hotbeds of radical feminism in their day. Uh, and that was where women came together to talk about social justice issues and to talk about dower rights, which were a very important thing then, because if you were a woman um, and you'd homesteaded with your husband and your husband died, or worse, if your husband abandoned you, you had very, very few legal rights. And so people like Henrietta Muir Edwards were pushing for women to get recognition for having property rights. And so... You know, Azina Ross didn't have the profile of uh, Louise McKinney or Henrietta Muir Edwards or uh, McClung or Murphy, but she was right in there with all of these women who were shaping public policy, you know, and it's, yes, they were really interested in sort of women's issues like child welfare, making sure there were, you know, snack programs and lunch programs for kids, the issues that are still frankly tagged as women's issues, but these were also places where women from a variety of different backgrounds could come together and swap ideas. Um, it wasn't just tea parties. She must have been really brave. Lisa, if you could address this, it you know, it, it's hard for women in 2021 to run for office. I can't imagine what was going through her head and the obstacles facing her in 1921. And the, and the way she got into city council was a lot different than we know of elections right now. She was actually an alternate. And, and, and the men, uh, once she was elected, the men were very upset because now they thought maybe they couldn't smoke anymore at council. <laughs> yeah, all the issues of the day, and they were worried <laughs> about that. Um, no, it, actually, it was really interesting. And, and you're, you're completely right, Stacey. It's, it's, it's an interesting way to look at it because the council itself was structured differently. So back in those days, they had uh, less, less aldermen on council. They called them aldermen. They did elections every two years. So they had two-year terms versus uh, going in now where we have four. And uh, at the time, they, it, was, it was interesting, too, because they didn't have a lot of time between nomination day and election day. Hmm. So um, they decided, I guess, back then to form uh, groups together to put entire slates of candidates up. And these groups... Lots of them had different names, but the one that seemed to be at the time the most successful was the Citizens League slate, and that is the one that Azina ran on. So they got together uh, in early December, had a meeting. They discussed all the different types of people that could be nominated to be on their slate of candidates. And at that time, uh, she was nominated by um, the husband of a woman who ran for school board, I believe, wow. uh, whose last name was Bishop. Um, but and she actually may have been on council later. But anyways, obviously a guy that was fairly enlightened. So he, he nominated Azina. 
And at the time, she got enough votes to be listed as the, the alternate. And what that meant was is that they had five seats they knew would be available on council. And there was this one that was a question mark. And it shouldn't have been, but it's kind of a weird situation. So uh, earlier that year, I think it was in July, Andrew McClellan, who was on council as an alderman, got elected as an MLA. And back then, you could be both. It's actually really interesting. You could be, if you were elected as a councillor, you didn't have to resign to run for an MLA and you didn't have to resign if you won. You could do both jobs until you decided to quit hmm. one of the two. So they were waiting to see whether Andrew McClellan would resign his council seat, which he did on nomination day, which was December 5th of 1921. So Azina had no idea whether or not she would get to be on the ballot until nomination day. And then she had exactly one week to campaign because their election day was on the 12th of December. So she put out, as they did, ads in the paper, and she went to her women's organizations and asked if they would endorse her as a candidate. And the uh, one that was she was the most active in, uh, they actually had three women that came forward that asked if they would uh, nominate them or endorse them as their women's candidate. And at the time, they decided to just choose one, and they went with Azina because she was in the executive of their group. That was the Edmonton Local Women's Council. So Azina got endorsed by women's organizations. She had been nominated on the Citizens League slate, which ended up winning every seat, including the mayoral chair. So uh, she did really well. Like she, she came in sixth place. She got 3,341 3, votes, which was fairly good at the time. But because she came in sixth place, she took Alderman McClellan's seat. So she only got a one-year term. It was essentially like a by-election. So she only got to serve until the next following election, which was in 1922. Wow. <laughs> and I think, I think it's useful to note, perhaps, that although she was the first woman elected to Edmonton City Council, there were already really quite a lot of women who had been elected to office. Annie Gale was the first older man, woman, uh, elected in any Canadian city, and that was in Calgary in 1917. There were already, uh, in 1917, two women who were sitting as MLAs in the provincial legislature, Roberta McAdams and Louise McKinney. And by 1921, Irene Parlby uh, was uh, in uh, the legislature, uh, and Agnes McPhail, who was originally, she'd been a school teacher in Alberta, but was now living in Ontario and was elected to the first, the first woman to serve in the House of Commons as a member of parliament. So, uh, Izina Ross, it is peculiar that Edmonton City Council was so late. We don't like to be beat by Calgary at anything. <laughs> um, Calgary had Annie Gale on council in 1917, and it took us until 1921. Doesn't, doesn't speak well of the, uh, the vision, perhaps, of Edmonton City Council versus Calgary City Council. Sorry to say, folks. Uh, and it's interesting that women made these breakthroughs in provincial politics before they did in municipal politics. Yeah, and just as just sort of as an aside, Agnes McVail, a long distant relative of mine. So my grandpa always used to talk about that. how we were related to oh, Agnes wow. McVail. So uh, I think whenever I hear that name, so I I, I kind of get a bit of a shudder and, <laughs> and a smile. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I wanted to ask uh, Lisa about Izina a little bit more because um, you alluded. Uh, Lisa about her lifestyle and how she kind of what her journey was like leading up to her running and and you know that the fact that the husband of um 
this other woman was the one to actually nominate her or, um, you know, put her name in, in for the running. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But for women in this era, um, as you were saying, we, they didn't have a lot of rights. They didn't have a lot of privileges in terms of, you know, independency, right? So can you, can you paint a little bit of picture about what her lifestyle would have been like in terms of responsibilities and, and, and that kind of thing, just to get a little bit more understanding of the amount of, I guess, what her plate looked like on a daily basis compared to, you know, 100 years later? Well, that's a really good point. I mean, one thing that is is interesting is that, Today, when you see a woman's name on the ballot, you see her name on the ballot. But in Zena's case, her name was not on the ballot. Her name was listed as Mrs. William James Ross. And so every time that we found any record of her, she was Mrs. W.J. Ross or Mrs. Will Ross or Mrs. William Ross, but never a Zena. So her, her, her identity was already wrapped up in that. And they even had a conversation um, when she was first elected about what would they call her? because the, uh, the rest of the council were aldermen. And so they would say Alderman McClellan or Alderman Duggan. For her, it was Alderman Mrs. What, Mrs. Ross. So they just the way that she was described, it took away her identity as an individual, as a Xena, which obviously just by using that name, her middle name, like it's so unique and interesting. She, she must have been a cool and wonderful and interesting woman. But she... I mean, the thing is, it's hard to tell because her story wasn't told, but there are some little pieces that we've seen of things she did that were cool. In 1911, she entered a province-wide short story contest that the Edmonton Journal had. And we actually have copies of her submission that won sixth place. We'll post it, post it up. And it, it's a really cool, like, fiction story that she wrote about the time and about women. And it's called The Plains of Peace. Um, she she was out there like homesteading and raising her daughter, but for the time she was older. She was married at the age of 30 when the average age of a woman in marriage was 22. Mm. She had her daughter when she was 34. She was elected at the age of 47 for the first time. And she served not just on Edmonton City Council, she was there for a year. But when she was defeated in 1922, she then continued to be a community member. She was on the Edmonton Exhibition Board and the Edmonton Humane Society Board. She was the rep for Eastwood Neighborhood on the Edmonton Federation of Community Leagues Board. She was uh, a very active member of the Alberta Liberal Party. So you can find records of her all throughout the 1920s and 30s, just as an engaged community member. And one of the reasons for that maybe is that she was older, but she, she had one child. She was an only child, and she also only had one daughter. And at the time, again, that's unusual to be a mother of only one. So she she really felt, I think, like she needed to give back to her community and, and be a voice for the women that weren't in her situation, that may not have had a supportive husband, that may not have been able to do the spend the time and go to the different events and meetings she did. So she, she was really interesting in that way, and she served from 1934 all the way up until just a couple of months before her death in 1945 as an Edmonton Public School Board trustee. So she didn't give up on her political life. She she found another way to serve later in her years. Mm, that's really interesting. And uh, we're speaking uh, today with Senator Paula Simons and uh, businesswoman and former mayor of Morinville, Lisa Holmes. And this podcast, Lisa, is called Searching for Izena because we really had to search. Like you you have spent months 
digging up all of this information, and there's still a lot of holes. She was the first Edmonton City Councillor. There's a little parcel of a a park in in uh, uh, buried in the city somewhere that has her name on it. But really, before I was asked to do this podcast, I'm like, ooh, uh, first city, ooh, mm-hmm. Izina Ross, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't. We, you really had to dig. In fact, you could. We were actually going to launch this podcast without a picture of her. But your tenacity found one. In fact, you just recently found another uh, photo of her. It's hard to find information about her, right? Even even, even now, it's hard to find people who actually knew her and her, uh, her family. It is. It, it's, it's difficult because she, she had one daughter who didn't marry, who had moved to the United States. So she didn't have immediate family and descendants in the Edmonton area. But still, I, I'm a little disappointed that the the records on on city council were not maintained, not just for women, but in general, but specifically for women. There are no documents about her. There is very little in the archives. Like I, I have a background in genealogy. I've been doing that for since I was like 12, so 30 plus years now. And it's really, for me, just a, an interesting way to be able to dive in and discover someone's story. So for this was just like, I, I'm, I'm loving every moment of this and I will continue to research Azina as much as I can over the next nine months as we work through this project because every day I'm discovering something new about her. Mm-hmm. Like we actually found a, a film review that she had written last week on this really interesting, I I didn't really know what it was. It's like a documentary film that has no sound. It's black and white. And it's about teaching women and young girls about um, like abstinence and, and, and really in a scary way, it's crazy, but she was all about it. She thought this was the best film. (laughs) Yes, It was very much like that. And I was like, okay, well, she's definitely conservative woman, but she was also out there like, rallying for the Liberal Party, and she had some Liberal views. So she's just a complex and interesting character. And I was also, I was really sad that she hadn't had the opportunity to be celebrated. Like, she mm-hmm. she had a lot to give, especially in her neighborhood of Eastwood. Like, she, um, her house was at 118th Street, and se- 118th Avenue and 77th Street. So where it was that she lived her entire life in Edmonton is now the bus turnaround that's just outside the Coliseum LRT station Oh, off of 118th. And like, just to know that like she, she was there, her park is up on Fort road. Like there's little mentions of her in city history, but I really hope the legacy of this project is that, that we take the time to get women that are in leadership positions to document some of their own history so we can share it in the future. Because for Azina, I'm honored to be able to be telling her story to all of you, but uh, I feel sorry for her that we, we really haven't done this, until 100 years later. And that's the thing, tough. Lisa, I was just going to ask you, because, you know, what I what I notice um, in the world and with us as women, we tend to downplay our accomplishments and, you know, all that we've been able to achieve and what we do. And we tend to shy away from praises. Right. Do you find that it's the same even for you, Paula, with, um, you know, Margaret? No, Crane. I never shy away from praise <laughs> or from celebrating my accomplishments. Soak it never, in. Never. Soak it in, girl. <laughs> No, what I mean is for, you know, in regards to in, in women in just in general, right? Um, you know, the reason why Izina was so, it was so hard to find anything on Izina. Is it that society wise tend to downplay what women has accomplished and what role we've played in society compared to men? Or maybe we were already at a quota because we, we know the names Emily Murphy and Irene Polby, right? Maybe it was like, we've got enough women to remember we can we can maybe sacrifice a few the alternate yeah 
I mean, I, mean, I, I think there's something to that, Stacey, because, you know, I, I mentioned Roberta McAdams a little while ago. Uh, she was elected to the Alberta legislature in the same election as Louise McKinney. But I had never heard of her until a few years ago when somebody did write a biography of her. Mm-hmm. And then I did a deep dive into Roberta McAdams' life. And she was a remarkable woman uh, from Edmonton who was a uh, teacher of home economics at uh, Victoria High School and went and served in the First World War as a nursing sister, although she wasn't a nurse. She organized hospitals for uh, for uh, soldiers who'd been wounded on the front and organized sort of like all the food and the management of, of how the kitchens ran and got elected on the same ballot as Louise McKinney, but as the um, as there was a special ballot for soldiers to vote for. And so her campaign was give your other vote to the sisters because the soldiers got got two votes. So give one to a man and give the other vote to the sister. So she ran against a slate of men and she won. But her name has all but been forgotten. And I I personally, because as I say, I don't shy away from celebrating my own accomplishments. Mm-hmm. I pushed really hard for Edmonton Public Schools to finally name a school after her mm-hmm. because I thought this is crazy. She was one of the first two MLAs. She was an Edmonton Public School Board teacher and we didn't have anything after her. And there's now a school named after Roberta McAdams in uh, Griesbaugh. So, you know, it it's funny how some people, I mean, McAdams' accomplishments were every bit as important as McKinney's, but she she got lost to history. And, um, you know, in a minute, I'm going to be speaking about Margaret Krang, who's our second ever city councillor. She was a female city councillor and she was extraordinary. And, and she was all but lost to history, too. It's mm-hmm. as though we only have bandwidth for, you're right, a certain quota of formidable women. And then we think, okay, well, that that's all of them then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're good. We're good. Thank you for listening to Searching for Izena. This podcast was made possible thanks to the generous financial support of the Edmonton Community Foundation. We also want to thank the Edmonton Public Library, the City of Edmonton Archives, the Adams Agency, and Ryan Jesperson for the generous use of his Real Talk recording studio. Check out searchingforizena.com for a full list of this project sponsors, partners, and committee members. Searching for Izena has been largely powered by volunteers from across the capital region, from research to social media to marketing. Volunteers of all ages, backgrounds and political leanings are helping bring Searching for Izena to life during a pandemic and countless Zoom calls. Thanks to the former and current Edmonton City Councillors who have helped us tell their important stories. Now, back to searching for Izena. Let's let's get into it. Let's let's uh, talk about unlike Izena. You dug up a lot about Edmonton's second female councillor, Margaret Krang, and she has quite the story. She sounds like a girl that, um, a woman that uh, I think anyone would love to have a beer with. She she seemed a <laughs> bit like a firecracker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if Izena Ross had to sort of be uh, constrained by the social conventions of her time, uh, Margaret Krang threw all the conventions out the window. <laughs> so here's here's a remarkable story. Margaret Krang was elected to Edmonton City Council in 1933 when she was 23 years old. Wow. So how does a 23-year-old get elected to Mm -hmm. City Council? I mean, she's still the youngest councillor we've ever had. 
So she was a remarkable young woman. By the age of 23, she'd uh, obtained a, a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Alberta, her teaching certificate from the normal school, and a law degree Wow! Wow! by the time she was 23. She was a champion diver, a track and field star, uh, a competitive swimmer, and she ran for city council as part of a labor slate. And I think it's interesting, you know, what Lisa was saying about Azina. I mean, getting elected on a slate might be easier than running on your own. Mm. And she ran on a labor slate, the same slate as her own father, who was a physician from Garneau, uh, and he was running for school board. And she ran for city council and uh, and was elected. It was a, uh, on this labor slate and became a city councilor. Uh, again, the stories were, you know, can we still smoke if she's on city <laughs> council? Um, they seemed inordinately concerned mm-hmm. about this. Uh, and and she was a pistol on council. She was reelected, so she served two terms, uh, which is a pretty good thing because it's not easy for a female candidate to be reelected. And she campaigned and pushed hard on council for all kinds of social justice reforms, whether that was for lower transit fares or better services for, for families and children. And then she got herself into a legitimate scandal. She went to Europe as part of a peace delegation and ended up in Spain, which was at the beginning of the, the, the Spanish Civil War. Mm. And she was, of course, uh, she was a left-wing progressive. Uh, so she was very much opposed to Franco and the rise of fascism in Spain. And she uh, she went um, and, and hung out for some time with loyalist soldiers and wrote a, a, a piece for the Ebbing Journal in which she explained that she fired a gun at Franco's, at Franco's troops and, and came back. And people were like, hmm. Uh, young lady, we sent you to a peace conference and you ended up in a battlefield. How did that happen? It became a national scandal. Papers from across the country wrote about how unwomanly she was. And so that may have contributed to the fact that uh, when she ran for council for a third time, she was not reelected. But then again, she ran on a labor slate and it was a bad it was a bad time for labor. Her, Her father also lost his seat on school board at the same time. And there was a sex scandal too, right? Surrounding her. There's a se- well, I, I I don't know that the sex scandal was public. <laughs> let's dig into when it. I, okay, let's well, let's have the sex scandal because it's sexy. <laughs> so when I set out to look, when I took out to search for Margaret Krang, I found all of her papers at the provincial archives. But I was also able to track down a niece and a nephew who had childhood memories of her, and they told me this family story that you know it was sort of the talk of the family that Margaret Krang had had a love affair with Norman Bethune who was the famous Canadian doctor who fought with the loyalists in Spain against Franco and then went to China and was doctor to Mao Zedong and is still remains a, a national hero in China. And they said to me, yes, uh, she and, and Norma Bethune met in Spain and that's where they began their love affair. And I put that in the draft of my story. And my editor, Kathy Kerr, said to me, you better check the dates because, you know, how do the niece and the nephew know this? And it turned out that Margaret Krang and Norman Bethune were never in Spain at the same time. She was there first, and he didn't go over uh, in, until uh, until some months after she had returned to Canada. Mm. But they did travel through Alberta together, near as I can tell, unchaperoned, on a speaking tour where they went to raise money uh, for support of, of both the uh, 
the anti-Franco forces in Spain, and I believe also to raise money for Mao uh, and 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 uh, 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 revolutionaries in China. And they stayed in a lot of small Alberta towns together, <laughs> just the two of them, which is certainly not uh, conventional morality for the 1930s. So... I don't, I mean, I have no way of knowing whether she had a love affair with Norman Bethune. Her descendants certainly think so. So uh, Bethune was married. So oh, um, there that's, you, go. you know, that's, uh, that's the thing. But, you know, even, even after she left uh, Edmonton City Council, she was, she was very political. I should let you guys stop and ask a question or let Lisa jump in. I've just been talking, talking, talking. It sounds, it sounds like something from a movie, Paula. I'm not going to lie. You know, when you're watching those old time days movies, that's exactly what it well, sounds it like. Well, it needs to be a movie because I mean, I mean, she went to Spain. She fired yeah. guns at Franco's, at Franco's militia, you know? I mean, and then when she came back here, uh, she did, she, she was a lawyer. So she practiced law, which was sufficiently unusual in the time. She does sound and cool. And she took on a lot of social justice cases. Um, uh, she fought for the rights of uh, Chinese Canadian immigrants. She fought. She mm-hmm. fought against uh, anti-Semitism. She fought uh, for you know. She fought for the underdog in her legal practice, taking on all kinds of cases that no no big law firm would handle. And she kept running for provincial politics as well. Uh, and this is where she got into some trouble because. You know, was she a communist? Was she a leftist? You'd think. Mm-hmm. But then she got quite enamored of early social credit politics as the Depression hit. And so you have this bizarre disconnect because on the one hand, she's a vehement anti-fascist. She's speaking out against anti-Semitism and the rise of Hitler and speaking out about Franco and, you know, you know, went on these whistle-stop tours uh, talking about how terrible Hitler was. At the same time, she's kind of ranting about international banking conspiracies and buying into social credit dogma. So I think when she went to the polls provincially, people were a little confused. Mm. She, she did not stay on brand. She did not stay on message. And I think that precluded her from getting um, the kind of success and traction in provincial politics that she'd had on Edmonton City Council. I'm curious, Paula, because the whole point of this 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 podcast is talking about uh, on unwomenly stories of female leadership, right? So, with with Paula being such a firecracker, <laughs> right? What what you know with with all that she did um, in her time compared to 2021, would we still say her actions were unwomenly? Well, I mean, to be honest, if if somebody, you know, got themselves elected to city council as a young woman of 23, I think we'd still find that pretty mm-hmm. impressive. Mm-hmm. If they went to take part in a guerrilla war uh, <laughs> against fascism, <laughs> I think we might also think that was that was pretty remarkable. Um, you know, she even by today's standards, I think she was remarkably progressive and brave and and transgressive. I mean, she was a really subversive political figure because, you know, uh, Nellie McClung, uh, Louise McKinney, uh, Isina Ross, I mean, they were married. They had these domestic relationships. Uh, Krang never married. Uh, she turned down numerous proposals. Mm. Uh, as a young woman, she was strikingly beautiful. Uh, but uh, she had terrible medical problems as she approached middle age and uh, developed um, uh, Addison's disease. And it left her uh, hunchbacked and uh, 
with real physical problems. And I think also, um, you know, what, what her niece describes is that, you know, she came back to Edmonton after having um, adrenal gland surgery that left her quite physically devastated and lived upstairs in the family home in Garneau uh, with her sister and, you know, would come down and embarrass the family oh, wow. by sleeping till noon and then coming down in her housecoat and maybe having a bit of a drinking problem. Um, she she eventually you know left Edmonton. She became a journalist for a time and then uh, ended up in Vancouver. And her nephew and niece told me stories about you know they about going to visit, and um, she shocked them because she was growing marijuana plants on her windowsill. <laughs> I uh, like her. <laughs> and, and off, and off, she, 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 the way the story went, um, the family arrived and, and their, you know, Auntie Margaret offered the teenagers a beer. And their mother was like, oh, Margaret, they, they can't have beer. And then Margaret said, well, you know, if not beer, Mary, some of the, maybe some of those nice uh, organic Mary Jane I'm, I'm, uh, I'm harvesting Jane. here <laughs> on my windowsill. I mean, this is, you know, and how have we remembered Margaret Crane? Yeah, uh, yeah. Not, not nearly enough. And mm-hmm. it's not because she was boring. And it's not because she hid her light under a bushel. I mean, uh, she was not a shy and retiring person. And yet we've forgotten her too. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not just a question of people like Azina Ross and Roberta McAdams not making headlines. Margaret Crane made lots of headlines. But because perhaps because she was so transgressive and she didn't fit anybody's narrative of what a properly, you know, a proper young woman, a ladylike person should be, which is why we should embrace her now. Because, you know, uh, she she would, you know, if you could reconstitute her today, I think she'd still be, I think she'd still be making headlines. I think it was cool too that she, like Azina had to struggle to get on council. She came in last place, like she was scrappy, like barely made it. But um, Margaret Krang was still the only woman prior to 1964, I believe, when we went into the ward system, that received the most number of votes in an election for council. Like she came in first place on her reelection, I think her second time. And it, it's just amazing to think that she she actually won the hearts and minds of people after she had had a year on council because she worked hard mm-hmm. and she was very good at what she did. So she wasn't like Azina where she kind of just had to like, like get her way in, but just squeak in at the end. Like she, she won her way handily and she was very supported, which is, is cool to see because she was an amazing, amazing person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, um, I, I hear you on that, Lisa. Um, Paula, what you were talking about just now um, and what Stacy was saying too, with, you know, maybe the issue was b- meeting that quota so that every woman after that is kind of like, you know, um, irrelevant in a sense. But, you know, we know that um, Margaret, she had around the fab five you know they were famous she wasn't but yet still you went ahead and kind of dug up information on her why well i have to tell you why um because the city's naming commission said that they were considering naming a park and a, a, i think a small road after her in a new neighborhood subdivision of Cavanaugh, which was then kind of up up for construction and i thought who the heck is Margaret Krang? Why have I never heard of her? And then I got mad that I hadn't heard of her. And then just like Lisa, you know, you go down a rabbit hole. It's a dangerous <laughs> thing to go researching in the archives. You know, you come up three hours later for air and go, oh, you know, I I went here, I went there. Um, you know, you, you it, 
you know, it's not like Indiana Jones. I'm not, I'm not dealing with snakes and people trying to roll boulders on top of me. Mm. But when you go on an archival search, it becomes quite addictive and you start, you know, I sort of, I thought I was going to do just like a quick and dirty column for the paper. And, you know, I went off to the archives and never came back <laughs> and, and came back to the newsroom and said, no, no, this can't just be a column. I need a whole Sunday, I need a whole big Saturday section of the paper. I need pages and pages. <laughs> My editor's like, really? Seriously? I said, yes, yes. Her story must be told. And so, um, uh, it, it, you know, I had a, I had a great publisher at the paper once who, when I was on the editorial board, we would come in in the mornings and she would say, well, what are we angry about today? And I think sometimes the best journalism comes from being mad. It's that sense yeah. that somebody didn't get their due. And that sense that I had too, like, I felt ripped off. Why had nobody taught me about her? Why didn't I know about her? Uh, and, you know, I do think, I mean, part of it is that we don't celebrate the stories of women, but I think we also have a hard time celebrating the stories of awkward and uncomfortable people. Right. Mm -hmm. We like to have our history sometimes wrapped up as these nice little morality tales that we can teach children that they have a happy moral. This is a person who did good deeds and they accomplished good things. And, and that's biting us on the butt right now, isn't it, Paula? <laughs> right? Like, yeah, we're, you know, we're, I mean, we're taking you down statues and. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are very few perfect people. And frankly, I think we've made our history excruciatingly boring by taking out the people who are the mavericks and who are the rule breakers. And, you know, we can't have this neo-Victorian idea that we only study people because they were good. Uh, mm -hmm. We have to study people sometimes because they're bad and broken and sometimes because they break all the rules. And sometimes the qualities that make you, uh, that give you the drive and the energy to accomplish something also make you a deeply unpleasant person. It was interesting speaking to Margaret Krang's niece and nephew. I mean, they, they, they had very different memories of their aunt. Uh, and the nephew was, I think, much fonder of her than the niece was. And I suspect this was mm. in part because I think Margaret Krang, she always liked the boys. Um, <laughs> and I think, I, I think she had a, I think she had a different relationship with her nephew than she did with her niece. Um, apparently she used to complain to both of them that uh, uh, her, her problems with her adrenal glands had really lowered her libido, which I think, you know, they had very vivid memories of their aunt as you would too, if she'd been your aunt. <laughs> Touché. And I think a lot of people are going to get mad after listening to this podcast, because why didn't I know this? Mm -hmm. Why didn't I, I ever hear these names before. Mm -hmm. uh, before we let you guys go, um, I want to ask you this. Political narratives, they seem to be owned by men. Most of our communities, our parks, our landmarks, they're named after men, but for two little parks named after these two women. Um, besides this podcast, let's do a little bit of a call to action to everyone listening right now. Is there a way we can honor these women? How do we get people to uh, know their names and their accomplishments? What can we do? Lisa, let's start with you. Well, I think one of the things that that has struck me the most in this project, and I, I want to make the point that we just have talked about two. There has been so many stories of amazing women that have been elected to council in Edmonton. And the rabbit hole continues, and we will continue to go down and, and tell their, their colorful stories that, like Paula said, are not always good. They're not always great. They're not always perfect. A lot of these are going to be like, ones where we're going to take offense to the things that they've said or done, but that's okay because 
that's part of history. But I, I hope that, like for an example, um, Ethel Wilson was a young mom that got abandoned by her husband, had three little kids, was working full time for the Burns Meat Factory in like the 1950s. And this is a time where my mom was born in Edmonton. And this is where she was growing up at this time. And I can imagine like my grandmother in this role and her husband abandons her. She's got these three little kids that she's raising. She becomes a union activist at the Burns Meat Factory. Then she then decides to run for council. She is still the woman that has served the most terms on council, which is seven. And not only that, she kept her job as a seamstress the whole time she did it. Wow. And halfway through her council term, she ran for MLA, won that. So she was both the seamstress, the counselor, and the MLA at the same time wow. while raising three little kids. Hmm. So the next time that someone asks me the question of, oh, well, how are you a, a mayor with two kids at home? I'm going to be like, huh, let me tell you about Ethel, Ethel Wilson. Like, seriously, there's women who have surpassed so many barriers and odds to get to leadership positions to serve their community. So I really hope this inspires women who are on the fence that are like, I think I might want to run for council. I don't know how to get involved. And we can show you and share these stories and inspire you to say, you know what, I'm going to be. I'm going to be on the backs of these women jumping up into the air and celebrating who I am and what I can bring to council or whatever that is, school board or library board or community league or hockey mom or whatever you want to do. So I really hope that that's the case. And through this and also through the website and social media, and honestly, afterwards, if I don't feel like these stories have been told, I'm just going to tweet about them every day until I feel like everybody knows <laughs> Do your their part, name are sick of hearing about it. Because it's that important that I think that we we celebrate women in leadership and, and not just these women, but every woman that is served in any leadership capacity in Edmonton. Wow. And I think it's really important that we include these narratives, mm-hmm. not just in social studies curriculum, but in our in our in our culture, our popular culture, uh, not just you know. I mean, I have never found Margaret Crang Park. I'm assuming that it's out there somewhere in Kavanaugh. Um, I should go find it and take a picture of myself standing in it. I think that would be a a, a good thing to do. Um, but I think that these these stories are the birthright of every Edmontonian. Mm-hmm. I mean, we should know the stories of the people who who built this city the men and the women and you know so often we, we we tell the same five stories over and over and over again and it no wonder people are are tired of the way we teach history because we leave all the really interesting lumpy bits out the knobbly bits which are are where you know it's we we need to understand what made us the city we are including the colonial legacies, including the systemic racism, including the systemic classism. And I think it's interesting how many of these women uh, came from working class backgrounds. I mean, that story about Ethel Wilson uh, as a union leader, I mean, she's our Norma Ray. Well, where's her movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where's where's Margaret Crang's movie? My, my sub- slightly subversive thing that I did, um, uh, my daughter is a, a playwright and director and over the covid lockdown uh she created a a radio serial called hardboiled she got all her actor friends uh to be to be part of this radio serial and i said to her, you have to put margaret krang in the radio serial <laughs> she's like who's margaret krang and i said seriously my daughter you break my heart did you not read my story on margaret krang and i kept emailing it to her over and over until she finally <laughs> read it and she's like okay all right this is cool and so indeed margaret krang and norman bethune are sort of making off camera cameo uh 
in her in uh, in in one of the episodes of her mini series and i thought yeah that's how i'm just gonna like just i'm just gonna keep putting margaret crane in sort of like you know uh try to sneak her in there at every opportunity and that's why when you know when Catherine uh, and everybody from the YWCA approached me about doing this I leapt for joy to talk about Margaret Crane because I think I think she's amazing okay thank you Paula thank you Lisa so the YWCA research team spent hours trying to find photos of Izina and Margaret for you guys so if you do want to put faces to the names of the women we were speaking about you can check out Parity Yegg's Twitter page, or you can check out searchingforizina.com. And there you can find all the information, see their pictures, get familiar with the women we're talking about, and understand why we say they are trailblazers for the era that they served. Yeah, I I, I had to totally go and look and see what they actually looked right? like. Right. Uh, coming up, a familiar name on our uh, third podcast, former Mayor Jan Reimer will be our guest for episode three. There were so many city councils where there were no women, but coming up, we talk about the one time we had gender parity and a female mayor, 1989 to 1993, 32 mm-hmm. long years ago, mm-hmm. folks. Jan will tell Searching for Izena about uh, that historic time, what it was like for our city, and why she's eager for another woman to take her title as Edmonton's only female mayor. Wow. Hint, hint. (laughs) Get on it. (laughs) Nominations are open, everybody. Exactly. (laughs) We'll see you next time on Searching for Izena, Unwomanly Stories of Female Leadership at Edmonton City Hall. You've been listening to Searching for Izena, brought to you by YWCA Edmonton, Parody Yeag, and several past and present Edmonton City Councillors. New episodes from our nine-part podcast are released the third Tuesday of every month until October. Please check our show notes, social media, and searchingforizina.com for more information about this project and how you can get involved. Share this with your friends and family and leave us a review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, keep searching for Azina. I was going to say one thing, which you probably can't use, but I heard Olivia Beauty doing the voiceover on the first, uh, on the first episode. Yeah. Years ago, I can't remember whether I had called her to interview her about something or if she had like called me up in the newsroom, but she said to me, you should run for city council. And I said, oh, thank you. No, I, I'm not going to do that. She said, do you have kids? I said, yeah. I mean, at the time my daughter was younger and she said, no, she said, cause that was, that was hard for Jan when she was mayor and she was being a mom too. She said, wait until, wait until your daughter's grown up and then you should run for city council. So, but I think she's like, she was one of the f- first and only people who, who put that bug in my ear. And so when I heard her voice, I thought, isn't that fun to hear, hear Olivia Beauty still doing well and, uh, yeah, she is a firecracker. Man, she's fun. You know, and I'm, I'm going to say this. I don't know if you can use this at some point. I mean, use it as a pull quote someplace else.
I think it's interesting that a lot of the women who were elected to city council over the years were parts of slates or got elected when wards had two different counselors. Mm-hmm. And I think that made it easier for women to be elected. And when I was growing up in Edmonton, like when I was in junior high and high school, there were oodles of strong female city councillors. And it wasn't weird or uh, radical or strange at all to have strong women on city council. And I sometimes wonder if it was an unintended consequence when we switched to doing one councillor per ward and when we moved away from slates that fewer people uh, fewer women got elected to council. Hmm. And maybe some of those systems, which weren't designed to be affirmative action by any stretch of the imagination, but I think they did facilitate the election of women. And I think once we moved away from slates and once we moved away from two people per ward, uh, it became much harder for women to break through. Maybe that's another podcast all unto itself, Paula. That's one. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's, that's good. Yeah, I, think, I think, I, and I think, or just something, a question you can ask like, you know, when you talk to Lillian Strazik or Olivia Beauty or Jan Reimer, if they think, uh, Jane Batty, if they think that's the case. Yeah, we will. That's a great idea. Well, we have, a, we have a spreadsheet that lists out all of the statistics. Mm-hmm. And it's actually really interesting. And it's, again, it's not this episode. It'll be another one. But essentially, um, we have, we've been on a trend of, of, of more women elected in some ways. Um, our, so the average number of female candidates from 20, 1921 to 1964 was 9%. And then it went up to 19% wow. from 64 until 2000. And that was at like the, we went to an at-large voting system, but not the two per ward. And then the two per ward was, we are now at 25% female hmm. candidates from 19, no, from 2000 to 2020. Oh, wow. So it, it's not great, but it it's not horrible. Like looking at it, it was just really interesting to see that our overall gain since 1921 has been 19%. The other thing that's really weird is that Edmonton is an outlier. I mean, Sherwood Park, Strathcona County has had strong woman, strong female mayor after strong female mayor after strong female mayor. Mm -hmm. Um, St. Albert, uh, Parkland County, uh, Mournville. (laughs) You know, I mean, Red Deer, Fort McMurray. These are not like radical left-wing hotbeds. Uh, but you know, they've all had really strong and successful women mayors. And so I remember I people giving Jen Reimer a hard time, man, from her voice to, I, I was in high school, but I, she, she had a rough ride. I remember. Yeah. Especially in her final term. Yeah. Because I think when she was first elected, you know, she, she also, there was an economic downturn, which was totally beyond her power to control. Uh, but she got punished for, you know, a, a downturn in the price of oil. Where have we heard that before? Um, <laughs> Never. 